We are going to talk about meetings this morning. We have all had important meetings to attend of some sort. Obviously, some meetings are more important and more significant than others, but regardless, a meeting is something we usually have scheduled, so we mark it down. We mark the date and the time on our calendars. We want to make sure that we don't miss it. We don't want to arrive late. But there is one future meeting that is the most important one we could attend, and yet, though it's extremely important, you can't put this one on your calendar because we do not know the date or the time of this meeting ahead of time. Also, this very significant meeting won't take place in a conference room. It won't take place at a doctor's office or a room here at the church or a classroom. Instead, it is going to take place when all followers of Jesus will gather together with Him in the air. And no true believer will miss this meeting. In fact, no true Christian will even be one second late for it. It will take place exactly when and exactly how God has already decreed in His own eternal mind. Now, it is the passage we are studying today that gives us just a few details concerning this meeting in the air, a meeting commonly called the rapture. And as we say many times, a person can disagree on certain details about the timing of the rapture and so forth, but we cannot disagree on the fact of it. There is a such thing called the rapture. Scripture does teach it. It's in our passage today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. Now, let me review verses 13 and 14 for us just for a moment. As we noted in our last study of 1 Thessalonians, the Thessalonian believers knew about the future rapture. They believed in it, but they were upset due to their misunderstanding of something. Their concern was over their saved friends and saved relatives who had died. More specifically, they were worried that the ones who died would miss this meeting, and therefore, they would not receive their glorified bodies. So Paul wanted to comfort them, and he alleviated their fears by telling them that God does indeed have a plan for the bodies of those believers who die before the rapture, this meeting occurs. And because of that reality, Christians, he wrote to us, Christians should not grieve like those who don't have this truth. We as believers should not grieve as those who are living by worldly perspectives. Don't get me wrong, we certainly do grieve when a loved one or a friend dies, but we do it from a biblical perspective. The truth that we believe shapes our grief. Now today, we are going to begin looking at the few details about the rapture that Scripture does give us, and we will break down the instruction that we find in these verses into four elements. 
We'll only be looking at two of them today. Here's element number one, the validating authority. The validating authority. Everything that Paul has written to these Thessalonian believers, and by the inspiration of the Spirit, what he's written to us today, was given to him from the Lord himself. This teaching, this instruction, did not originate with Paul. Look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. And that phrase, the word of the Lord, is not referring to some utterance of Jesus while he was here on earth. There is nothing recorded in the Gospels that covers the present statement. Neither is Paul quoting some sort of unrecorded saying of Jesus that was passed down, passed along through tradition. No, instead, this is referring to a direct revelation from the Lord to Paul on this topic. Now, the apostle mentions this direct revelation that he received in another passage, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And there, this subject of the rapture, this meeting in the air, is referred to as mystery revelation. And just to remind you, in the New Testament, when you find Paul referring to something that's been a mystery, that refers to information, instruction, doctrine that previously had not been revealed, is formerly not known in the days of the Old Testament and so forth, but has been later revealed. That's what mystery means. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, die, but we will all be changed. He's referring to this meeting that we're discussing this morning. So this information about the rapture was truth that was formerly hidden, but then directly revealed to the apostle, and this meant that Paul had divine authority for what he's telling us. He had divine authority behind what he was writing concerning what is going to happen in the future rapture. That's element number one, the validating authority. Element number two in our study today, the ordained order. The ordained order. The very order of what's going to happen at the future meeting was ordained by God. You've been in the meetings that have an agenda. You're following the agenda. There is a divine decreed agenda and order for this meeting. And here is that order. There's two major steps to it. Step number one, the dead will be raptured first. The dead will be raptured first. Now, to make this point, Paul does begin talking about those who are not dead, those who will still be alive at the time of the rapture. Verse 15 goes on. He has this authority given to him by the Lord to say this, verse 15, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, stop there for a moment, this confirms there will be believers alive on the earth when this aspect of the Lord's coming takes place. Another word for his coming that's sometimes used is parousia, the Lord's parousia. There are different aspects to what Scripture teaches about the future coming of the Lord. So just some summary thoughts about 
the promised return of the Lord before we go on. His future return to earth is clearly prophesied in Scripture, but there's more than one aspect to it. There is his actual return to the earth, literally stepping upon the earth, but there's more than one aspect to it. There's that one. He comes in power and glory to the earth as the conquering king. The scripture also speaks about the future coming and the aspect of the judgments that are going to be poured out on the unbelieving world, judgments that are associated with his parousia, his coming. And yet another aspect of the future return of the Lord, the future parousia, his coming is the moment that God has ordained when Jesus gathers his people to himself before the judgments are poured out, and this gathering, this calling to himself, is what is referred to as the rapture. The point is that all the aspects are discussed in Scripture as elements connected with Jesus' future coming, so it is any given context that determines what aspect is meant and being discussed. By the way, even the label the day of the Lord is sometimes used in more than one way, a broad or narrow way. So our passage is giving some details about the beginning aspect of the parousia, the rapture. At that future event, there will be a whole generation of Christians alive on the earth. Those who will never experience physical death at all. Now what's interesting is that when Paul writes this, and you can see it here, he uses the first person pronoun, we, to describe that generation. Paul used this pronoun because of the way he lived his own life. He believed the rapture could happen within his own lifetime. He never said that it would for sure, but he did speak and write as if it could. He lived with that mindset, and of course, as time went on, he also knew something else. He knew that it might not happen in his lifetime, and thus, as his life progressed, it became more and more apparent to him that he was to prepare for his death. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, he writes to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So Paul avoided date setting. He was not like that. He knew what Jesus had said about that, and I've quoted this to you before. I'll say it again, Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day, this is Jesus talking, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Plus, we have what is said in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. This is after Jesus had been crucified, after he had been buried, after he had risen from the grave. He'd ministered on earth for a while in his resurrected body, but he's going to ascend back to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, his disciples with him have a question. They were asking him about the kingdom. There had been a kingdom promised to Israel. And so they said this in Acts 1 verse 6. When they'd come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? 
It was clear in their minds there's going to be an earthly kingdom. So how did Jesus answer them at that moment? I'll tell you what he did not say. He did not say, listen, all of that was just symbolic. All of that was a metaphor. I'm amillennial in my perspective. He didn't say the millennium, no, that's sort of a metaphor for the gospel preaching in the world. He didn't deny there was a kingdom coming. He just said this to him in verse 7. It's not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So Paul was not one of those who was setting deadlines. Nevertheless, without setting a deadline, he still hoped that it would transpire in his own lifetime. And a personal hope of this type, I would say, characterized all of early Christianity. Listen to several of these verses. Romans 13, 11. It's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. No date set on it. But we're one day closer every day. Live with that perspective. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 2. Paul writes, indeed, in this house, this body, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, longing to have our glorified bodies. We live with that perspective. We long for that. Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting eagerly. Philippians 4, verse 5, the Lord is near. 1 Timothy 6, verse 14, keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep obeying until He comes. He's coming. 2 Timothy 4, 8, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. There's the normal way to live the Christian life with that expectancy. Titus 2, one more, Titus 2, 12 and 13. Live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Back to our text, the Thessalonians got that. They actually shared that very outlook of expectancy, looking forward to this meeting, to this aspect of the return of the Lord. If that had not been their outlook, they would not be having this question and this concern regarding the exclusion of the dead in Christ from the parousia. That issue would have been meaningless to them if they didn't believe this, something that was coming. They were thinking in terms of an, of an imminent parousia. They lived their lives that way, just expecting it to see it even before their own deaths. An intervening period of messianic woes or birth pangs, none of that was their anticipation. Therefore, Paul had taught his converts the right attitude. He had taught them that the next event on the prophetic calendar for them was this meeting, to be gathered to Christ, and that's still true. So here's what they needed to know about those Christians then, back to the question, what about those Christians who are alive? What about the ones who are dead? Here's what they needed to know about the generation that would be alive when this meeting happens, the moment of the rapture. Verse 15 says, 
they, the ones alive, that generation will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And as we've seen before, fallen asleep is used in this passage. We saw it back in verse 13 to refer to those who had died, believers who had died. Those who are alive at the time of the rapture will not precede those who've fallen asleep. It's interesting how the King James words that verse, written in 1611. At that time, the word prevent, which is what the King James uses here, the ones alive will not prevent those who have died. At that time, the word prevent meant something like they won't get a head start. We hear the word prevent today and we think something different. No, you have to understand how English words were used in 1611. This means the the living will not get a head start, so to speak, over those who had died. Now, that phrase, that negative will not, it's a very strong double negative in the Greek. They certainly will not. They by no means will precede those who have died. The living will absolutely not meet the returning Christ ahead of the dead. So that's what he's talking about here. There's an order. The dead will be raptured first. But still, before directly saying that, what happens to those believers who have died, he does push the pause button on that discussion of the order and inserts some information that the Lord had given him about the coming itself. Verse 16, this is all related to this meeting. Here's how it's going to happen. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Now note that this aspect of the parousia will be emphatically personal. The Lord himself, there's no intermediary being sent out here. He's not sending his angels out, not at this meeting, not sending his angels out to call believers to himself, Jesus himself in his glorified body will return personally for his people. And he'll do it by descending, coming down from heaven. Why? Because heaven's where he is now. He lived, he was crucified, he was buried. Because he died, He was raised from the grave. He ascended back to heaven, and since that moment in Acts chapter 1, he's been sitting enthroned at the right hand of God, the place of significance, the place of preeminency and power ruling over all things. Romans 8 verse 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. That doesn't mean over at the right end of the room. It means the place of preeminence and authority. So our verse is saying that at this future moment, Jesus will leave that. He'll leave the throne in heaven and descend. And then the text uses these three prepositional phrases to just describe some accompanying circumstances of this dissension. As he descends, notice first of all, he's going to speak. Verse 16, he's descending with a shout. And that noun literally means a shout of command. It's a, it implies authority, urgency. It was the same term used in their day of a general who would shout out orders to his troops. And here is the shout of Christ himself. What's his command? He's awakening the bodies of dead believers, no matter where they are, no matter what condition those bodies are in. 
You know, he said something about this in John chapter 5. A long time ago when we studied that chapter together, John 5 verse 25, listen to Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 28 of John 5, and all who are in the tombs, all meaning all who are in Christ, believers, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And verse 29, and will come forth. As he descends, he's going to give this command. You know what a great picture of that is? John chapter 11 in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, right? What a scene. John 11 verse 43, Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus and it says there in John eleven forty three, 43, he cried out with a loud voice, a command, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? I'll tell you what didn't happen. Lazarus wasn't in there in the tomb going, I don't know. I've kind of adjusted made some friends. I'll tell you what happened. Verse 44, the man who had died came forth. It was a command. Jesus descending, shouting this command to all the dead believers. Associated with this command, here's another qualifying prepositional phrase. There's going to be another voice, another sound. Verse 16 says, with the voice of the archangel. That word voice may, may mean speech. It is a word that can also just mean a sound, some tone, some sound produced by this individual, the archangel. The word archangel occurs only here in one other place in the New Testament, Jude verse 9. And in Jude verse 9, we find out a name, Michael. It's possible that Michael was the only archangel, possible. But it's also possible there were other archangels, and that's because of Daniel 10, verse 13 in the Old Testament. Michael is said to be in Daniel 10, one of the chief princes. So that leaves the door open that there could be other archangels. But whoever this angelic being is, he adds his voice, he adds some sound to the Lord's command at this future event. And there's another sound associated with the command of the Lord, verse 16, and with the trumpet of God, a trumpet that belongs to God. Now, the mention of a trumpet here, an eschatological trumpet, has raised the question of its relationship to other end-time trumpets mentioned in Scripture. I'll tell you what it's parallel to, and that's 1 Corinthians 15. Clearly parallel to the trumpet mixed there. It's the same trumpet, 1 Corinthians 15. Both these passages relate to the rapture of the church. Verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. I read that to you a moment ago. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. But you should not equate this trumpet with the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, verse 15. And there's some reasons for that. Revelation 11, verse 15, it says, The seventh angel sounded, meaning sounded the seventh trumpet of judgment. I think the commentator Hebert has done as good a job as any of summarizing the differences between the trumpet associated with the rapture and what Revelation eleven fifteen 15 is talking about. 
First of all, the subjects are not the same. Here in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're talking about the church, believers of the church age. In Revelation 11, the subject is the wicked world. And the results are certainly different. Here it's associated with the glorious, as we'll see in a moment, the catching up of the church to be with the Lord. In Revelation 11, it's judgment upon a godless world, further judgment. This trumpet here in our text is signaling the close of the church age, life of the church on earth. Seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, that's marking the climax of a progressive series of of apocalyptic judgments upon the living on the earth. So the trumpet here in 1 Thessalonians is not that one in Revelation 11. Others try to make it the same as what Jesus mentions in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse 31. Matthew 24, verse 31 says, And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, angels, plural, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. It's not the same. There's some similarity in sound, but there are marked differences. Again, the subjects are different. Here, it's a reference to the church. The Olivet Discourse is talking about mostly the many Jews who will come to Christ during the Great Tribulation. Circumstances are different. Here, this trumpet is connected with the raising of believing dead in Matthew. There's no mention made of a, of a resurrection of any kind. And the results are different. Here, the blowing of this trumpet results in the uniting, as we'll see in a moment, the uniting of the raised dead and the living who are alive at the rapture as one body to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And Matthew 24 is talking about the elect who are regathered from all parts of the earth, who are alive on the earth, living believers. So again, this trumpet in 1 Thessalonians is one associated with the rapture, not the aspect of Jesus' actual coming to earth in power. There's even different possibilities on how these three phrases relate to one another. They could be describing, the language allows this, that one happens after another. The shout, some tone by the archangel, the blowing of a trumpet... It's also possible that there's the shout by Jesus and the other two, the archangels, making the sound with the trumpet associated with what Jesus says. It doesn't really matter. It could be three distinct sounds. Whatever is right about those details, the greater point is that all believers will hear and instantly respond to this summons when it goes out. So clearly, the rapture is not a silent event. Some seem to think that the world is going to be totally unaware of the rapture of the church, that the saints somehow have silently slipped away, we're not sure. The world will hardly note their absence for a while. Others say that, no, it's at the other end, there's going to be so much sound that the unbelieving world is going to go exactly what's going on. They're going to hear every detail of it. It's probably not that either. The better way to understand this is that the unsaved world are going to realize something. They're going to hear something. They're going to realize something extraordinary, something supernatural has taken place, but they'll not understand the significance of the sound. 
It'll be like it was with Saul on the road to Damascus. Remember when Christ crashed into his life? Those with him, Saul on the road to Damascus, it says in Acts 9, that they heard the sound of a voice. But they, they didn't hear words articulated. They didn't, they didn't see anybody speaking, but they heard something. It also happened in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, Jesus was foretelling his death during the Passion Week. And it says in John 12 that a voice from heaven spoke. And those who were there listening to Jesus, they heard a sound. And they all had different interpretations of what they heard. Listen to John 12, 28 and following. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. Here's what the voice said. I have both glorified your name and will glorify it again. Verse 29, so the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it thundered. Did you guys hear that thunder? Others were saying, an angel spoke. Did anybody hear that angel? So regardless of some of those particulars, the rapture, we can conclude, is not only a momentous aspect of the Lord's future return, a very important, momentous aspect. There's sound associated with it. And believers are going to respond to that sound. And that brings us to Paul releasing the pause button then on the explanation that's going on here of the order. And he thus now gives us the first thing that will happen as a result of the Lord's descending, the Lord's command, the Lord's call to his saints, directly the Lord doing it, verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's step number one. Dead in Christ is another way referring to those who have fallen asleep in Christ. We saw that back in verse 13. This does confirm that the resurrection that's being discussed here, the scope of it is only for believers. There's another resurrection for unbelievers. Revelation chapter 20, the unsaved dead will be resurrected unto judgment. That's not what's here. Here... It's those who are in Christ. That tells us that physical death doesn't sever us from Christ. But we're talking about the bodies of believers who will have died by this future time, whenever it is. There's been many already died. Some died recently. Some will die this week. More in the future, whenever, whatever the Lord has determined. Where are their souls now? When a believer dies, their soul goes to be in the presence of the Lord. But what this is talking about is what's going to happen with their bodies. The souls in heaven are going to receive their resurrected bodies before the living are raptured. This is the first act in the drama to take place at this aspect of the parousia. So back to the Thessalonians' concern, they're concerned that their unbelieving loved ones, I mean, their believing loved ones and friends, they're going to miss out on this. So far from being excluded from the parousia, far from being at some disadvantage, those who have died are going to be the first participants in the Lord's return here. And that information must have brought great relief to those Thessalonian believers and has certainly brought relief to innumerable Christians in the centuries after them. Step number one, the dead will be raptured first. Second step, in the ordained order, the living 
will be raptured second. Verse 17, then we who are alive, then, meaning after that, there's a, there's a note of succession there, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. That little note of, of succession doesn't necessarily indicate any long interval here. It's not that. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, makes it clear that there's no appreciable interval that's measurable, really, between the raising of the dead in Christ and the catching up of the living saints. Verse 52 of 1 Corinthians 15 that I read, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So the second act in the drama follows at once. Those believers alive on earth at the rapture are going to be caught up. And that verb caught up denotes a sudden and forcible seizure. It's an irresistible act of snatching up, you could translate it that way, or carrying off by force. I've already noted that the Latin for that Greek verb, caught up, it's the Latin translation that is rapturo, or in this text, it's raptus. That's where we get our English term rapture, from the Latin. It's found elsewhere, this verb caught up. Acts chapter 8. Remember the story when Philip shared the gospel with that Ethiopian who was reading the Old Testament scriptures, didn't understand the prophecy, and God miraculously put Philip there The man believed, and the Ethiopian wanted to be baptized, and so they got out, and and Philip baptized this man. Listen to Acts 8, 39. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched away Philip. Same verb. Boom, he's gone. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's discussing his thorn in the flesh. Before he tells you about the thorn in the flesh, he tells you about this experience, this miraculous experience he had. So miraculous that he didn't even want to say it was himself. And so he talked about it happening in the third person, about a man. But he's talking about himself. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body or do not know or out of the body, whether dead or alive, I'm not sure. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. That was Paul. And God allowed him to see some miraculous things. Same term in our verse, this is what will happen to believers who are alive. Immediately after the bodies of dead believers are raised, those caught up will join those resurrected to be, it says, with them. So the interval separating the actions related to the two groups will be infinitely small by human measurement. And then together the two groups will ascend verse 17, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Literally, it's amid clouds. It's going to be, they're going to be surrounded by clouds. And clouds is used over and over in Scripture to represent the presence of God. You see it in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai when Moses led the people there to the mountain to have a meeting with God. It says in Exodus 19:17, there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain. Why? Because God was there. At the transfiguration, Mark chapter 9, a cloud formed overshadowing them and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Why was there a cloud? Because God was there. 
Psalm 97 verse 2 says it this way, clouds and thick darkness surround him. So those caught up are going to be surrounded by literal clouds and the immediate purpose of this catching up of believers is for this meeting. This meeting with the Lord in the air. You find this word air occurring over and over in the New Testament to mean atmosphere. Don't automatically interpret this as the immediate vicinity of the earth. That is what we see all around us, air. Well, at least in Los Angeles you can see it. The layer of air from the earth up to the top of the mountains, you know. It took me a long time when I moved here. I didn't trust air. I couldn't see, you know. Don't necessarily think of that, especially here in our text. The idea is, is not that this meeting is going to take place in this layer of air here that we're breathing. The idea is to draw our attention up, upward without particularly defining it like that. It's somewhere is the point in the interspace between earth and heaven. It could be far beyond what we normally look up and see each day. And don't pass over the deep significance of why this is the place of meeting. What does Ephesians 2 verse 2 say is Satan's domain and his realm? Ephesians 2 2, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. This interspace between earth and heaven, that's where Satan and his minions operate. So what a thought. This future meeting will take place, to put it in athletic terms perhaps, will take place on the demon's home turf. In Satan's very domain, what an illustration this is going to be of the Lord's complete victory over all evil powers. Just one more thought. Paul here in this text doesn't specifically say anything about the transformation of the living that they're going to experience when they're caught up. There's going to be a translation. There's going to be a change in the living believers. 1 Corinthians 15, again, 53 and 54. We're going to receive our glorified bodies. If we're alive at that moment, we receive our glorified bodies at that moment. 1 Corinthians 15, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So, in this rapid sequence as the Lord descends, the dead will be resurrected, receive glorified bodies as their souls are reunited with these glorified bodies. And as well, the living will undergo an immediate change and be glorified, have their bodies glorified in conjunction with being caught up. And from that moment on, both groups will be eternally insusceptible to death anymore. I love Philippians 3.21. The Lord will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body 
of his glory. Think about what this moment's going to mean for you and me if we've died before this time. Or if we're alive, either way. The living in this moment, we tend to think that, well, I can't wait to get to heaven to see my mom and my dad again. No, it's here at this meeting. The living will not only recognize but will be reunited with their departed loved ones if they were in Christ when they died. We all have friends and family members that were burdened carry burdens about because they don't know Christ. I get that. But those who have died in Christ and those who are alive at that time are all going to have a reunion in this interspace between earth and heaven as we all see the Savior for the first time like this. What a meeting that's going to be. I've heard believers say this, and maybe you've heard it. I've heard believers say that, you know, when you are parting to say goodbye and you're planning another visit maybe in the future, you know, and or there's another meeting coming up and or a reunion or a gathering, you might say, you know, goodbye, I'll, I'll see you then or I'll see you in the air. You ever heard anybody say that? I'll see you then at that meeting or I'll see you in the air. It's kind of trite, I guess, on one hand, but on the other hand, it's a very appropriate thing to say. Say it to my care group. I'll see you at care group today, or I'll see you in the air. What a thought. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We will know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. This is how we're to live our lives with this expectancy and this hope. But I got to tell you, this mindset and this hope is only for those who have come to put their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They've put their trust in Jesus' perfect life that he lived, his substitutionary death, his resurrection from the grave. Their trust is in him and what he accomplished for their sins to be forgiven. It's only for those. And it is those very core tenets of our faith that we are mindful of now as we observe the Lord's table together today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these details that you chose to give us about this future meeting, this event. There are things that are mysterious about it to us, and, but we trust what your word says. You wrote it, you gave this, and we believe it. So Lord, help us. Help us to live with this mindset. And, and even though there's more to study next time about it, about being with the Lord and comforting one another, help us to even take what we've heard today and be comforted by it, be encouraged by it. Help us to realize we need to live with this sense of expectancy every day. And we thank you for Christ who makes it all possible that we can have this hope. We thank you that the Savior came, the eternal Son of God, a member of the triune Godhead, 
came to earth, born of a woman, took on human flesh and nature, lived a perfect life in obedience to the law, willingly gave his life on the cross to pay for the debt of the sin of his people, rose from the grave on the third day, and ascended to heaven as the ruling, reigning Lord. Thank you for our Savior that there's hope in him. Thank you for him who made it all possible. I do pray for anyone here who's never truly come to say, I'm putting my trust in Christ alone. May you open their hearts today to believe. In our Savior's name, amen.